it'll do. So um, this is, I want to talk with us about a biblical theology of rest. A biblical theology, not just of rest, but of work and rest, because they go hand in hand. Um, but I, let me start with a story. Um, there's a story told of back in the height of British colonialism, when they were um, conquesting around the world. There was an English traveler who arrives on the shores of Africa, and he's all excited. I don't know what he was doing there, but he had a purpose in mind, and he, he wanted to journey um, several days into the interior jungles of Africa to accomplish this enormous goal that he had in mind, and he was excited. So he lands on the shores, and he starts looking for some natives who know the area, who could guide him into the interior. He finds some gentlemen who would be willing to travel with him, help him find um, his destination, and so they, they take off on their journey early in the morning. They journey all day. They're weary. They're, they're tired from the day of traveling, so they go to bed and that night, he just sleeps fitfully. He's so focused on his goal, on his task. He's excited. He's nervous um, of what lies ahead of him. So he wakes up early the next day. He gets everybody up. Guys, guys, wake up. It's time to go. Let's have some breakfast. Let's hit the road. Um, let's, let's do this. And he's surprised when his local guides say, no, we're not traveling today. Well, naturally, the English traveler asks them, why not? Why can't we travel today? And these locals, they tell him, we're waiting, we're giving our souls time to catch up to our bodies. We're giving our souls time to catch up to our bodies. I think that's a true story. I couldn't find, I couldn't find, you know, the original. Um, but either way, even if it's fictional, it illustrates a point that I hope we can think about this morning. Have you ever looked at our culture, and if nothing less, that story serves to highlight the difference of our culture versus what these locals in Africa were experiencing? Have you ever looked out at our culture and noticed the busy, hurried, frenetic pace at which people tend to live? People are just constantly in a hurry. We're rushing. It's fast-paced, dog-eat-dog world. I mean, if you, if you want an illustration of that, what was this past Friday? Black Friday, right? There's a reason they call it black. Uh, Corey Ten Boom, if you're familiar with her, she was a Holocaust survivor. Her and her family, they harbored Jews and helped them get to safety. And then later on, um, Corey and her sister, they were taken to a concentration camp because of their, um, because of their ministry to the Jews. And her sister passed away in the concentration camp, but Corrie ten Boom survived. And she's done quite a bit of writing and thinking, etc. And she said something, she's attributed at least, as saying, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. In other words, the devil, he can't force us to sin. He's going to tempt us, but one of his primary things he is going to use is making us busy. And maybe with good things, but not the best things. Things that just begin to crowd out what God would have for us to be doing in the day in the day to day. One more quote: "Hurry and love are incompatible. Hurry and love are incompatible." And let me illustrate. If you disagree with that, let me illustrate. 
Just think about the last few times that maybe you have yelled or gotten frustrated with a loved one. Don't those times tend to come when we're like in a rush because we're 10 minutes late and we're trying to get out the door and, you know, you're trying to get the kids' shoes and jackets on and somebody, you know, or whatever it is. The times when we're in a hurry are often when we're at our worst. At least I am. When I'm in a hurry, it's all about Daniel's agenda, Daniel's tasks, Daniel's schedule. Hurry and love are incompatible. And what I'd like to do is just think about this for just a little bit. So framing our topic is Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we have this concept of work and rest. And what I'd like to do is just, this can be a dialogue. I'd love to hear your thoughts, share your feedback, stop me. Um, But the goal of a biblical theology is we're tracing one concept from where it first appears in Scripture toward the end of Scripture, trying to understand what does the whole of Scripture teach about this topic. Sound good? So that's our goal, work and rest, work and rest. So what I'd like to do to start is let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read some extended portion of Scripture here. And what I'd like us to do is put on our detective, our thinking caps, um, and just make observations from the text. What does it say about work, and what does it say about rest? All right, and then once we have that foundational truth from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, then we'll fast forward and and look at what the rest of Scripture has to say about it. Sound good? So Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. Forgive me. Let's just remember the context. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day 1, he creates light and separates it from the darkness. Day 2, he creates the firmament. He sets it between the waters above, the waters below. Day three is the dry land, and he causes the vegetation to appear. Day four is the sun, moon, and stars. Day five is the birds and the fish. And day six, he's just finished. God has just finished creating all of the land animals, and now he is going to create mankind. So that's verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to every thing that creeps upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested 
on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pishon, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, there is delium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same as it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hittakel, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they both were naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So we'll pause there, and let's consider... Um, we're talking about first, you see it on the screen, the outline. We want to work from in the good creation, that's pre-sin, in the garden. In the good creation, what does it say about work and rest? Then, after the fall, and then we'll consider in the new creation. So what did you notice from Genesis, end of Genesis 1 and chapter 2? What does it have to say about work, and what does it have to say about rest? Miss Diana? I like what he said about you get to dress the garden. Hmm. You didn't have to slave and labor. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, to dress the garden and to keep it. It wasn't slave and labor. Yeah. Yep. Amen. So we have very specifically... Work and rest are addressed there with the example of God. In six days, God created, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, it says in chapter 2, verse 2. He ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day. And it says he blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he created. It's good. What else does it have to say? Does 
That's a good question. Could be. Were, the, were Adam and Eve resting? Maybe. They, that was their first, that was their second day on earth. So maybe. I don't know. But maybe it is implied. What else does it have to say about work and rest? Brother Ward? Sure. Yeah, to tend it and to keep it in verse 15. So there was something they had to do to, to take care of the garden. Yeah, even though there were no weeds to pull. That's the majority of what you do if you're gardening now. Brother Warren? Does it? Well, it does mean ceasing from labor. That's actually the root. That word rest is Shabbat, from which we get Sabbath. It means to stop, to cease. But it doesn't necessarily mean because you're tired. Miss Diana? Good. And to think upon the Lord. Mm-hmm. So can anyone uh, help us? How do we know God was not tired? He's perfect. Brother Corey? Yep. Yep. It's an anthropomorphism. We're projecting what we know, mankind, and then we're saying, God must be like us. Miss Wendy? I've heard an argument against the creation story in the Bible, which says that the fact that God rested meant that he was tired, meant mm. that he was weak. Mm. And I believe it was a Muslim argument saying Allah doesn't get tired. I mean, that argument has already been answered here in this room. Right mm-hmm. But I did hear someone putting forth that argument that the God of the Christians is weak because he had to rest after he mm. created everything. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that would be an argument that an opponent would want to make. Yeah. And we need to know the answer. We need to be ready with an answer to everyone who mm-hmm. speaks against us. Miss Lisa? Yeah, rest is actually not necessarily a weakness. It's actually good. Yeah, Kat? So, what I'm taking from it is that God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he wanted to enjoy the splendor of his creation. Mm -hmm. That it was to take that moment, the time, to enjoy what he had created and for what he had created to enjoy was the 
It's good. So there was the aspect of God was enjoying the splendors of creation that he had made. And then the other aspect that we brought up is God was setting a pattern for us of showing what rest ought to be like. We work six days and the seventh we rest. It's good. Ms. Wendy? I just remembered where I heard that about God being weak. Mm. It was on a TV channel, which I used to get and watched occasionally. I don't get it anymore. It was actually Muslim TV mm. actively recruiting for the Muslim faith to an American audience. Hmm. Interesting. Muslim TV actively recruiting to a, an American audience. They had classes for kids. Wow. And then lessons for adults and things like that. Yeah. Boy, interesting. Well, I don't get anything yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably good. Can you think of any scripture that talks about God and his infinitude as it is related to strength and, and all that? His power? Can you think of anything? Because we've said, we don't, we've said what it probably is. It's not God was tired. It's he was setting a pattern and he was enjoying his creation. But we've not said anything about, about why, why we think God doesn't, wouldn't have been tired. Miss Wendy? Just at random, I opened the Bible to a psalm, Psalm 81. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel of the Pleasant harp with the lute. God, our strength. Mm -hmm. It's all through the Psalms. It is. All through the Psalms. God, our strength. In Psalm 81. What other scripture? Miss Diana? Uh, well, Psalms again. Mm -hmm. 120 something or other. <laughs> Will you look to the mountains? Mm. For a God who never sleeps, he never slumbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 121, you say? Yeah. Thank you. That's good. Sarah? Uh, his kingdom shall endure forever. You can't have a It's good. His kingdom will endure forever, and you can't have a forever kingdom with a weak king. It's good. Any, any other scripture that comes to mind? Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. It's good. I think, actually, the, the creation week, the creation week, W-E-E-K, does the exact opposite from this argument to say that God is weak, W-E-A-K. Instead, it shows his strength, his power. Because we haven't even ever found the end of the universe. Corey? Well, and his motivation for resting was not that he's tired, it was that he was finished. Yeah. I mean, what, when do we rest when our work day is finished? Yeah. When our work week is finished? That's good. It wasn't, you know, as Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that God was tired, it's that he was finished. And I think we see that if you look through the narrative every time. He made it, and he looked, and he saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. And then chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was done. His work was finished. Amen. Anything else you notice from the narrative that talks about work and rest? They're both good. They're both good. I like it. Because... 
isn't that the truth? I when I'm tired and sweating and kind of sick of whatever job I have to do, I'm like, man, if only if we were before the curse, there wouldn't have been any of this work. No, actually, in God's good, very good creation, work was an integral part. He made Adam in his image. You saw that back in verses 26 and following. Adam is made in God's image, and God gives him dominion over all of creation. And he says, I've given you these, um, these plants for food. And then he talks more about that in chapter 2. Well, these plants that you're going to have for food, you've got to dress them and keep them. You've got to take care of them. Extend the garden, if you will. So that's good. Let's, uh, let's go and read um, in chapter 3 now, verses 17 through 19 area. And that transitions us from in the good creation to after the fall. Because we know the story, chapter 3, well, in chapter 2, God had said, you may eat of every tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the serpent comes and tempts Eve, and Eve eats the fruit God said not to, and she gives to her husband, Adam, and he eats. And now they hide. They make fig leaf aprons for themselves because they're embarrassed and they're running from God. And then God comes and he clothes them with animal skins. And then let's pick it up in verse 17. God has just finished cursing the serpent. Remember, he's cursed. He's going to go on his belly. He makes the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise that seed's heel. And then verse 17, And unto Adam he said, Because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return unto the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. What does that have to say about work and rest? Work got a lot harder. Now work is sweaty. <laughs> oh, come on, Dave. Oh, my. Work's not good anymore, he says. No. It's not easy anymore. And easy is not necessarily good. Hard sometimes can be good, too. Okay. That's a good question of what happened there. Did God now create a few new species of plants? In our area, a lot of new species of plants. Yeah, could be. Or did these plants just morph and start to something, something happen? Now they're growing out of sin-cursed soil as opposed to soil that was very good. Now the soil's been cursed. And part of that, their very fabric has changed. Now they're thorny and thistly. Isn't this fun? Well, that's a good question. Could they have been growing outside of the garden? But 
It said nothing about that prior to sin, and that's kind of, that's part and parcel with the curse from verse 18. Now, thorns and thistles it'll bring forth to you. And did you notice God picks up on the dust metaphor? What was Adam created out of? Out of dust. What was Eve created out of? Out of a rib. She's, ladies, you've got a one-up on us. We're just dust. You're, you're, no, I'm just kidding. But then God says, now you're going to labor in the dust until you return to the dust. Because you are dust. And then we'll pick up on that. Just keep the dust metaphor in your mind. We'll pick up on it in a minute. But that also goes with our makeup. Go ahead, Corey. Exactly. So not only did Adam lose his harmonious relationship with God, now there is strife there because of sin, but also the harmonious relationship between man, Adam and Eve, and then we see the next narrative is Cain and Abel. So there's rifts even in families, but also his harmonious relationship with the land. Now the land, instead of working with him and yielding much fruit, works against him, and it tends to want to produce thorns and thistles. And that comes up later when Cain murders his brother Abel, and then he's sent away, and God tells him the land is no longer going to yield to you its fruit. It says you're going to be a wanderer. Um, That's down, let's see. Where'd it go here? Well, forgive me, I can't find it. Oh, there it is. Chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Now you are cursed from the earth. The curse springs up out of the ground onto Cain, which has opened her mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto you her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond you'll be in the earth. So it's even further amplified with Cain. Not only is the ground going to just naturally produce thorns and thistles, but now Cain's going to till it, and it's not going to yield up fruit to him. Miss Diana? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Could be. Kat? I also have a question. Is, was the relationship with Adam different because Eve didn't seem, think it's strange that a snake came up and talked to her? It's true. Was she just innocent like a child would be? Or did they have a different kind of relationship with the animals and the animals no longer were compliant with humans? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe a different relationship with the animals. Because all the animals came to Adam to be named, and then Eve doesn't think it's strange when the serpent comes up. But then later, Genesis 9, God says, now animals will be afraid of you after the flood. So there is definitely some changes in our relationship, even with the animals. Miss Lisa. Everything changed. Well, is that the law of entropy? Everything's getting worse, not better. Yeah, Miss Wendy. After, it's after the flood that humankind is given the possibility to eat meat. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely a change in the relationship yeah. with animals. No wonder animals are afraid of, a, afraid of us. <laughs> Chasing them with bows and arrows, yeah. <laughs> All right, so now let's go... Uh, <clears throat> Well, let's just, let me just comment on a few of these texts. I can give you this Word doc if you want it. We won't be able to cover nearly everything in the document today. Um, but thinking about after the fall, works now harder. Exodus 23, verses 10 through 11, um, God is talking about, he says, Six years you shall sow your land and shall gather in the fruits thereof. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie still, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner, you shall deal with your vineyard and with your olive yard. So in other words, there's this six-year cycle. You work six years, you work your land, and then the seventh, you actually just let it rest. Leave it fallow. And we understand that from an agricultural standpoint. That's important. Otherwise, the land actually gets depleted of its nutrients. But God doesn't necessarily give that reason here. He says, it's so that the poor of your land can eat. He says, you should work hard six years so that the seventh, you can leave your land to rest so that the poor can come and eat out of the field. And then when they finish, the beasts of the earth can come and eat out of the field. And Paul picks up that similar concept of work hard so you have to give. Work hard so that you have to give. Not so that you can accumulate wealth, but so that you have something to be able to give it to others who are in need. Paul picks that up in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 28, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. Paul doesn't just say the solution to stealing is hard work, but he says the one who stole, let him stop stealing. Now he should work hard with his hands, what is good, so that he has to give to the one who's in need. Work hard so that you can give. Proverbs 6, we're familiar with that. That's the go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. She has no overseer. There's no leader for the ants. No one giving them orders. And yet they work hard all summer long, gathering their food so that then they can head into their homes and curl up for the winter and they don't have to worry. But what if we did that with people? If there was no boss, do you think most people would tend to work hard? Or might they tend toward laziness? They'd be scrolling social media on their phones. They'd be just taking a nap on the job. What's that? It's called anarchy, exactly. Self-rule. It's not a good thing. Very dangerous. But Proverbs 14.23 is important because as Dave said, tongue-in-cheek, work's not good anymore. Well, Proverbs 14.23 actually addresses that. 
In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tends only to penury. In other words, work is still good. There is profit in working hard. And what profit we find, let's go over to Colossians 3. If you've got your Bibles, go over to Colossians 3 and let's think about that. What is good about work still? While you're going there, Proverbs 20, verse 13, I think that's an interesting one. Solomon says, love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you'll be satisfied with bread. Other places, it talks about that as well, of being careful not to love sleep too much, but to also wake up, open your eyes, work so that you'll have some bread to eat. Um, Colossians chapter 3, will begin in verse 22. Servants, he's talking to servants and to masters. And remember, their servant-to-master relationship was comparable to our employee-to-employer relationship, worker-to-boss. Just remember that, comparable. Not one and the same necessarily, but close parallel. Verse 22, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, the concept we encounter here is work is worship. We don't just work for our boss to please them. It's not just eye service. Instead, we're working to please our master who's in heaven. Our earthly bosses aren't all good. But he says, obey your masters according to the flesh in all things. Unless the boss is saying to do something sinful, we need to do it. But he says, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I love that. Do it heartily with your whole heart work hard. So all work is good because all work can be worshiped when we do it to please God, and he'll give us the reward. Do you see that concept there, Brother Dave? Yeah. Amen. That's good. Not just pressing toward our goals, but for the glory of God. Amen. And with that in mind, let's, uh, let's go over to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a fun book. Um, it, if you don't, and Brother Ward, you just taught through this one too, right? Yes. It's a good one. Did you record them? Like a, just the slideshows or a recording of your voice? We've got to set you up recording. Okay. Just saying. But Ecclesiastes, it can be a little bit of a discouraging book if you don't know what's coming. But at the end of it, Solomon says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Realize that's what Solomon's working to. But chapters 1 through 12 
are talking about how Solomon, he was the wealthiest man on earth, he was the wisest man on earth, anything he wanted, he could get. And he did. Anything he wanted. He didn't say no to himself. Women, alcohol, horses, power, prestige, kingdom, gold, any of it. And he gets there. He has everything that anyone could ever want as it comes to earthly things. And he says, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. He says, this is worthless. It doesn't satisfy my soul. But Ecclesiastes chapter 2, look at verse 24. He says, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. So there's a very real sense, even in what Corey said earlier, of God rested because he was finished. We rest at the end of the day because the work day is over. We rest at the end of the week because the work week is over. We work hard and then we rest. Work hard, humbly rest. And Solomon says, enjoy the good of your labor. It's okay to have a good home-cooked meal. It's okay to enjoy the blessings of God because Solomon says, I see it. It's from the hand of God. But then let's go over to Psalm 103 and we'll pick up that dust metaphor and then we'll finish our time thinking about Sabbath for a few minutes. Psalm 104, sorry, Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is a really neat psalm. I'll let you read the rest of it. But we've got what, what the psalmist David is doing. He's talking about all of the blessings that God has given us, for which then we ought to bless the Lord. He says, forget not all his benefits. So he's listing off benefits or blessings from God. He talks about the mercy and grace of God, that he's slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. That's verse 8. Um, but then drop down to verse 13. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. That's what our lives are like. They're like grass in the Nevadan desert. They're beautiful for a whole week and a half. And then the wind and the sun come and it, it's gone. And the place doesn't even remember that it existed. That's what our lives are like. God remembers that. He knows that we're made of dust. He made us of dust and put in us the breath of life. And so God has mercy toward us because we are weak in our very makeup. But because we are weak, we have this responsibility from the scripture. We know we ought to work hard. Whatever God gives us, Work heartily as to the Lord, not to men. Do it as best you can to please the Lord. But then because we are made of dust, because we are weak, we also have a responsibility to rest, to take time off, to go to bed at night, to finish the work week and to leave work at work, whatever it is. Because if we refuse to rest, essentially what we're saying is, I am as good as God. I'm omnipotent. I don't get tired. I don't need to rest. Hmm. All right, let's go. Well, let's see. There's so many things we could talk about. Let me just highlight a few of these in the new creation, and then I'll let you think on that more, and then we'll talk about Sabbath. So Isaiah 65 talks about, Isaiah says, For behold, um, speaking, God is speaking, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. 
But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Behold, I create Jerusalem. And he talks through that. And he talks about how they're building houses and inhabiting these houses. They're planting vineyards in the new heavens and the new earth. That sounds a whole lot like work to me. Building houses, planting vineyards. Revelation 22 verse 3 says, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. That's actually the word back in Genesis, Hebrew word there, Greek word in Revelation, but serve is the word for work back there. It's the word to serve. So in the new heavens, new earth, we are serving the Lamb. That sounds a lot like work. And then we'll come back to that Hebrews passage. So let's go over to Exodus chapter 20. We'll finish our time here and we'll go over to, uh, to Mark just to finish it out. But let's go Exodus 20. It's a familiar passage. These are the Ten Commandments. Um, we have the first, I am the Lord your God, which has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then the second, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image, any likeness. And he works through that. That second one, no other gods before me, no graven image, etc. That's the longest one except for the commandment as it relates to Sabbath. The Sabbath command is actually the longest. So look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger that's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So what we see, we have this pattern that was established at creation when God created for six days and in the seventh he rested. Now in his covenant with Israel, this is the sign of the covenant. We find that out down in Exodus chapter 31, verses 13 and 17. Every covenant had a sign um, for, the, for the Noahic covenant. I'm not going to flood the entire earth again. It was the rainbow. For the Abrahamic covenant, the sign was circumcision. Well, for the Mosaic covenant, the sign of the covenant that shows these people, Israel, are God's people. The sign of the covenant was Sabbath keeping. It set them apart from all the other nations so that they would see this great nation Israel and say, wow, their God must be really wise to give them such a, a wonderful structure of the Torah. It's beautiful. But there's two purposes to the Sabbath as it gives us here. It's a day to cease from work. He says, remember the Sabbath day. Six days you work, the seventh you rest. So cease from work. But then the second aspect of it it's a day to focus on worship. What if we never took a day off? Maybe you've done that before. You work weeks and weeks on end. It starts to eat away at our souls. The truth of the word of God no longer hits us quite like it did. It's not as precious. It's not as special. That's why God gave us Sabbath, to take a day off, to pause and to think about him to thank him for his blessings, not to strive endlessly to accumulate, but to thank him for what he has given us. There's so much more here, but let's, uh, let's finish by thinking on Mark 2. You can go over there if you wish. Um, <clears throat> it's a narrative we're familiar with. Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a field 
on the Sabbath day. And what do his disciples do? They pick a little bit of grain. And you know the story. The Pharisees come and they say, why are your disciples doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? They're harvesting. And Jesus answers that by telling them, well, don't, haven't you ever read the story about how David went into uh, the tabernacle and ate the showbread that was only for the priests? And he says, and then he says, Mark, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So he gives them two reasons why it's okay for his disciples to eat the grain. First of all, he's like, actually, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm in charge here. I created it. So I probably know better. But then he says before that, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God did not give us the Sabbath command as a legalistic, we do this in order to obtain favor with God. Instead, Sabbath was made for man as a gift from a good creator to take time to pause, to rest and recuperate, and to worship. Now, I realize we don't live under law, we're under grace. I know people can debate till they're blue in the face about how does the Mosaic Covenant apply to us as Christians. I understand that. And you can think on that because we're out of time. But the principle nonetheless applies because when was Sabbath, the seventh day of rest, instituted? Not in Exodus 20. It was in Genesis 2. It was a universal principle given for mankind at large. So the principle holds true for all of us. And then you can finish it out thinking about Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, where it talks about this Sabbath rest that we anticipate in, in the new heavens and the new earth, that Christ is our Sabbath rest. Because his work is finished, our work will one day be finished. So we anticipate that. But what I want to finish with, the thought I want to leave in our minds is Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keeps the city, the watchmen wake but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. If all we do is anxiously strive in this life, we're workaholics and that's the only thing that matters to us. We miss out on one of the good gifts of God because it's in vain. We're weak. How much are we going to accomplish anyways in all that extra work that we do? God gives us sleep as a gift to us. So that's fun. I can give you the notes if you want the passages, but the principle of work hard and then humbly rest. Should we close in prayer? Our Father, we're grateful for this time. We pray for your help. Help us to work as unto you with our whole hearts because we want to glorify you. And then help us to be humble enough to rest, to remember that we are dust. You remember and you give your beloved sleep. So we give thanks to you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll be...